Thank you very much for joining us today, Greg. I think everybody here was already in my class or knows you personally. So I won't waste more time introducing you, but we're very, very grateful that you have come back and that you're sharing with us how to run a meeting. And I hope there's some slides about how to run a meeting on Zoom. <laughs> a bit of discussion of that. Perfect. Okay, take it away. Sure. So I think I have met everybody, but a quick recap. Uh, my name is Greg Wilson, and the single most useful skill I ever learned wasn't programming or double entry bookkeeping or how to throw Frisbee. It was how to run a meeting. And one of the reasons we all hate them so much is that most of the meetings we're in are very badly run. It's a case of the blind leading the blind. If you've never been in a good one, you don't know what they look like. So yours tend to be shambolic. And then we all come out of it thinking, what was the point of that? So first and most important thing, there are people who spent their lives studying this and boiling it all down. And you don't have to invent stuff yourself. There's a wonderful site called askamanager.org. If you've got any questions about how to do anything that involves managing humans, that's the first place you go. I find its advice very coherent, very well argued. I don't always agree with it, but at least it gives me something concrete to disagree with. Okay, so let's start with this. Rule number one, does there actually need to be a meeting? In most cases, the answer is no. If the purpose is to inform people, then send an email, create a Google Doc and share the link. The only reason that you would do that in person is if you're expecting questions and debate that can't easily be answered electronically. Second reason people have meetings is to consult. And most consultation is a pretense. Most consultation is really just informing you and giving you a chance to vent, but we're going to go ahead and do it the way we planned anyway, in which case, please just send me the email. It only really counts as consultation if people have a vote or a veto. And if they don't, treat it as case number one. If the goal is to discuss things, then yes, absolutely have a meeting. It is often the fastest way to achieve consensus and to get some kind of agreement or decision, but it only works in two cases. The first is small groups and small means half a dozen or less. The second is with well-defined procedural rules. If you watch for example, Parliament, it may look a little shambolic on TV, but that's because they're showing you the shouty bits. In practice, there's a lot of rules to keep things on track to make sure that discussion stays focused and so forth. And when you watch a well-run meeting like that, you'll be amazed at how much gets decided, how quickly, even amongst people who disagree with each other quite bitterly. But it takes practice in the same way that building code in a team of 100 people takes practice and rules. And the final reason people have meetings is to collaborate. Let's get together and have a meeting and build X. That's not really a meeting, right? A sprint or a hackathon is a really good thing. And, you know, let's get together and knit is fine, but that doesn't really count as a meeting and I won't be going into how to do that. Rule number two, create an agenda. If nobody cares enough to make a list in advance of the meeting, of what is going to be discussed and decided, then you don't need a meeting. If you show up and there isn't an agenda, it's a sign nobody really cared, in which case leave as politely as you can or avoid the next one. 
Um, when I am able, and I'm obviously not always able, uh, I simply don't attend meetings that don't have agendas. If you are the one making the agenda, include your estimates of timing. Let people know that you expect this is going to be five minutes or 15 minutes, so they have an idea about how deep we're expected to go. And try to prioritize things. I have been in meetings where, and yes, this was academic, but I've seen the same thing happen in industry, where 50 minutes was spent arguing over the coffee and five minutes was then left over to agree the budget for the coming year. Don't fall into that trap. Once you've got a list of things, you can, for example, at the start of the meeting, get a quick show of hands to say, which one of these is most important? Let's do that first. Please don't say, here's a bunch of small items. Let's knock them off first and leave time for the big one because the small ones always take more time than you expect. And then you're short of time for the big one. And finally, plan to end early. These days, I schedule my time in 45-minute blocks with 15 minutes of gap. In practice, that means that I've got five or 10 minutes of gap because things will often run over. And the quote there is a modified version of something my wife told me once. The basic unit of time is the bladder. And I said, well, I've never thought of it that way. And she said, you've never been pregnant. Okay. There are physical limits. Um, I have a bad back. I believe Peggy does as well. I can't sit through a three-hour meeting any longer. So I have to break things up into chunks of 45 minutes to an hour so that I can get up and do a few stretches in between. Otherwise, I'm in agony and I can't concentrate. Other people will have other issues. You don't have to ask what they are, but you can plan for it. Rule number three, have clear rules for making decisions. One of the most important pieces of writing in the last half century is a paper in the early 1970s by Joe Freeman, looking at third wave feminist groups. That's called the tyranny of structurelessness. And what she points out there is if your organization doesn't have an official power structure, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have a power structure. What it has is an unofficial and unaccountable one. If there's an org chart, if people have responsibilities, you know who to go to to get a decision. If none of that stuff is written down, then everything is being done by old boys network and who is friends with who and you know who is the most self-confident and you just go and buttonhole people. This doesn't mean you need Robert's Rules of Order. For those of you not familiar with it, that's the standard playbook for parliamentary procedure in the British system. So Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom all follow Robert's Rules. The US Congress has their own. It's a modification of Robert's Rules. It runs to about 60 pages. And my father's copy is back here on the shelf someplace. Hasn't changed in a long, long time. But that's sort of enterprise scale decision-making. For a smaller group, up to a few dozen people, we have found that Martha's rules work very well. And they emerged in the late 70s, early 80s. There's a link there that will take them to you, but I'll give you the one minute rundown. First thing, if somebody wants a decision made, they have to write it up, typically a one pager. Here's the problem. Here's my proposed solution. Here's some of the alternatives that I think aren't as good. Here's what it's going to cost or what time commitment we need to make or what the implications will be, right? That has to be shared at least one full day before the meeting so that nobody is sandbagged. And for those of you who don't know the term, that's when you walk in and discover that they're discussing something that you had no idea was on the agenda 
One group of people is prepared, nobody else is. I've used this tactic myself, I will probably use it again, but it's unfair. So the proposal has to be in 24 hours before the meeting. First thing that happens is what's called a sense vote. Everybody gets a thumbs up, a neutral or a down. If there are no thumbs down, if nobody's opposed, if everybody is up or neutral, it passes without further discussion. Everybody's had a chance to look at it. If nobody's opposed, let's go ahead and do it. If anybody is opposed, you then schedule a five or 10 minute discussion with a moderator whose job it is to make sure that everybody gets airtime. We'll talk about that in a minute. At the end of that, there is a straight up or down vote and it goes by majority. This works well for groups of up to a couple dozen people where there is mostly agreement on general direction, but disagreement on tactics. If there's fundamental disagreement about direction, if you've actually got two groups in the same organization that want to go in very different directions, this doesn't work. And if people don't read the proposals, it doesn't work. If that isn't the case, you can get through a lot of decision-making very quickly, including saying no to things, which is often the point of the meeting. Uh, one group that I'm involved in, a non-programming group, less than half of the proposals brought forward this year have passed on first try. Most of them have been sent back for further work based on discussion, based on people's opposition. Some of them have gone through three or four iterations before either going forward or finally being canned. But it's all been very efficient. We all feel like it's a good use of our time. Okay. This is what a good proposal looks like. Max two pages, an abstract that summarizes it. No teasers. Don't say we will discuss the implications. What you want is somebody should be able to read the abstract and know what you're proposing. There's the background, there's the proposal, there's budgets, there's an FAQ including alternatives, and then a few bullet points about the history and discussion today. We keep ours as Google Docs. We're sure to add tags so that they're findable afterwards. Other people keep them as issues in a GitHub repo with a threaded discussion. Other people keep them as markdown files in GitHub, whatever it is. You want the archives so that you can go back later to find out why you're doing something and what other factors were in play. Rule number four, somebody has to be in charge. This doesn't mean that the moderator is doing all of the talking or making all of the decisions. In fact, that's a sign of a badly organized group. The moderator's job is to be the umpire or the conductor, to make sure that everybody else is getting airtime, that everybody's being heard. There's a lot of research that shows that meetings tend to be dominated by the two or three most self-confident, i.e. most privileged people in the room. That may or may not have anything to do with how much they actually know. The moderator's job is to even that out. Call on people in order. If I see three hands go up, I will just point and say, okay, Roshan number one, Alessandra number two, Omar number three, you've got your time, you've got your time, you've got your time. If somebody tries to interrupt, it's my job to just shush them and say, okay, we'll get to you. We encourage people to keep a backlog. If Roshan is talking, everybody else who's got questions should be jotting them down and crossing them off as they get answered. So that by the time he's done, the only questions left are the ones that are relevant saves everybody a lot of time. Um, please only allow people one point at a time. If somebody says, well, I've got three or four things to say, it's absolutely 
give me the one that you think is most important, and then we'll come back to you rather than allowing us to go down a rabbit hole where you're scattering the discussion in several directions. This is, by the way, one of the places where online works better than in person. Because if I was running a meeting online, I would be asking you put your points or your questions in the Zoom chat or in the Google Doc so that I can see them and sort them and group them to keep us on one topic at a time. And I'm pretty sure Peggy has introduced you to the idea of card sorting for qualitative research. Okay, the moderator for a meeting should be doing that in real time. Here are the points, let me keep them aggregated. And I actually once saw somebody writing down, this was in a Scottish Labour Party meeting 30 years ago, but writing points down on three by five index cards and just moving them around on the table to make sure that there were clumps of things to be discussed so that he could see what's the backlog look like? How much interest is there in that topic? And I never thought of it in terms of card sorting until 20 years later in a discussion with Marion Petrie. And it's like, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. Okay. Um, rule number five, which ought to be rule number zero. And yeah, Margaret's saying hard to do in real time with Zoom and Google Doc. If the moderator is one person and they're trying to manage the discussion in the backlog, I agree with Peggy's comment in the chat. But if you've got a co-pilot, if you've got two people getting in a meeting, one person is calling on people, keeping the discussion flowing. And the second person is the one who's managing all of those offline resources, grouping things up. And I don't know how many of you have worked in restaurants, but in a a large well-run restaurant, you'll see a similar sort of dynamic. There is a maitre d' whose job it is to get people to their table, to make sure that everybody is smiling, to do the laps. But there's probably a lieutenant whose job it is to make sure that the order for table number five is queued up and what happened to that woman's coat and so forth, so that the maitre d' can focus on what she's supposed to focus on. Again, it takes a little bit of practice to do this, but it's a similar skill to teaching online. If you've got a class of 30 people, the professor should be focused on delivering the content. Their co-pilot should be the one focused on queuing up questions, answering the easy ones, bringing everything forward. And I'm going to be very interested to see how quickly those skills evolve now that so many of us are working that way. So rule five, require politeness. Right. Um, all other rules are really a special case of this one because the sincerest form of politeness is treating other people's time as if it was valuable. So no technology during in-person meetings. Right? Anybody who says they can multitask or they're listening with one ear or whatever is basically saying that they're more important than you are. So all devices go into politeness mode. For those of you who haven't seen it, politeness mode is face down, switched off. Right? No under the table checking. Now, there are exceptions. If somebody says at the start, I'm waiting on a call from childcare, fair enough. But anybody who's got their laptop open in an in-person meeting isn't paying attention to the meeting. If you force them to unplug, the meeting will be over faster. Right? Uh, in the same way that if you told my dad he couldn't smoke in the car, he would drive faster. Right? Um, no interruptions. And this is a hard and fast rule. The moderator is the only one who gets to interrupt. And they only interrupt if somebody is running on too long. Now, Peggy's asking, what about taking notes? I insist on, on handwritten notes during a meeting precisely to avoid the distractions. 
Because if I believed I could trust everybody in the meeting to only type into Notepad and not have email, Twitter, Slack, and 15 other distractions open, then I would do it. Yeah, Cassandra's pointing out, multitasking on devices during meetings. My wife says that you should treat a meeting like a date. And honestly, if I'm on a date with somebody and they are only giving me half their attention and the other half is checking whatever happened on their favorite TV show last night, yeah, I'm not coming back for another date, right? Uh, no rambling. This one is particularly hard in academic meetings. Right? You have to be willing to cut people off. And I, I have had people get quite upset when they say, well, I, I'm, I'm not really clear where this is going and I'm going to, and then I cut them off and say, well, why don't I give you a minute while you think about where it's going and I'll go and ask somebody else. Or if you're three sentences in and I still don't know what the question is going to be, I have to be willing to cut you off. This turns out to be the hardest one because many people, particularly senior figures, will react badly. They're not used to being put on the same level field as other people. I'm okay doing it. Um, there has to be a code of conduct. I assume in any professional organization, a university, an open source org, that there is some sort of code of conduct that completely rules out some sorts of behavior. You know, there's some sorts of jokes that just aren't funny. And uh, Peggy, I need a head nod from you. Am I allowed to swear a little bit? Okay, do people, do people know the phrase Schrodinger's asshole? You know, Schrodinger's cat, the one that's either alive or dead. Okay, Schrodinger's asshole is the guy who says something offensive and then decides based on the reactions of people around him whether he was being ironic or not. You know, can I get away with this? And the answer is no, right? There's a time and a place for that. It's not here and it's not now. Because once we start down that road, it's just gonna get worse and other people will then become defensive and withdrawn. This is not a social gathering. The point of this meeting is to get decisions made and let's get it back to our social gatherings. Rule six, record minutes. Most people aren't aware of this, but for the first couple of decades that he was in power, Joseph Stalin was not actually president of the Soviet Union. He was the general secretary of the Communist Party. He was the one who got to draw up the agenda and take the minutes, which meant he was running things. If I'm the one who gets to write down what happened, I'm the one who gets to decide what history is. Right? So why do you write it down? First and most obvious, so the people who couldn't make it will know what happened, what was decided. It doesn't need to be verbatim, but every important decision or every important new fact needs to be recorded. Second, you want the people who were there to be able to agree on what was happened. I can't count the number of times I've looked at the minutes of a meeting and said, wait a second, I didn't agree to do that. I said, I'd think about it. And, and even if I did agree to do it, I didn't say I would do it on my own or by then. The third reason to write it down is so that people can be held accountable. And this is the same reason that we have a backlog for a project. Why do we have tickets in the GitHub repo? So that we can keep track of things. If somebody said that they were going to, you know, I'm gonna pick on Derek, right? If Derek said that he and Thomas were going to have this fixed to the website pushed in time for the next meeting, at the next meeting, I want to be able to check it off. 
If it didn't get written down someplace, you're relying on human memory and we're all of us feeling pretty overloaded. Number seven, you gotta manage that guy. And yeah, it's usually a guy. In fact, I've been that guy. So just in the uh, Zoom chat, do you know the three sticky trick for managing meetings? Answers please in the Zoom chat. Okay, I am about to make your life measurably better. Start of the meeting, everybody gets three sticky notes, right? Or, or three pennies or three jelly beans, three tokens. Okay. Every time you talk, it costs you a token. When you are out of tokens, you are not allowed to speak until everybody has used at least one, at which point we reset and start over. This ensures that nobody is talking more than three times as often as the quietest person in the room, and it completely changes the flavor of the meeting. This was done to me in my second startup to get me to shut up because like a lot of people you've met, I acted as if no matter how many people were in the room, I should be talking half the time. You've met me, right? I wasn't aware of what I was doing until I'd run out of sticky notes 15 seconds into the meeting. It's like, huh, I have to be quiet now. I've been using this for over 20 years and I have seen grown men pull $20 bills out of their wallet trying to buy a sticky note because they're jonesing for the sound of their own voice. And across the table, there's a woman. And yes, it's always been a man and a woman. And she's got her three sticky notes and a great big grin because what she's thinking is now you know what it feels like to be me. A lot of people get trampled in meetings so often that they stop trying to contribute because they know that as soon as they start talking, somebody's going to roll over them. Once you have a visibly fair mechanism for enforcing equal airtime, there's now room for everybody to contribute. It's not just that it keeps it fair, it's that you can see that it keeps it fair. And it's essentially a promise that you're going to get at least some chance to air your opinions. It sounds like a small thing, but here's something I would really, really like some grad student on the call today to experiment with, and I promise you will get a highly rated and much read ICSI paper out of it, okay? There is a non-programming group that I'm involved in that has a hard and fast rule. One message per person, per topic, per day. Because what we found was that, you know, I would wake up here in Toronto and there would be 85 messages in a thread back and forth between people who are in Poland, Italy, and the United Kingdom. And I'm just going to throw out my hands and say, I can't get into this. Like, like, how am I going to contribute? I'm already behind. I'm feeling swamped. Right? Once we brought in this rule, which is the equivalent of the three stickies trick, what we found was that a lot of people who were firing off lots of quick emails would now stop and think, do I want to burn my one message on this topic today on this particular point? Or do I want to wait and think and put together something a little more coherent. It made room for other people. It didn't just slow down the people who were talking before they thought. It made space for the people who needed more time. And I don't have any data on this, but I believe that it particularly helps people who are marginalized because of gender, because of race, 
or because they've got poor English skills and it just takes them a bit more time to compose that message. This would be almost trivial to add to something like Slack or to an email list manager. What effect does it have? Okay, that, that's a studyable thing, right? And if we're looking at practical steps towards making organizations more inclusive, making sure that people have a chance to be heard and that they know that seems like a pretty good step. Um, another tactic for managing that guy is uh, interruption bingo. Start of the meeting, you just make a little bingo card. Everybody's name goes on the rows and on the columns. And every time that Cassandra interrupts Anthony, I put a check in the appropriate box. Every time Sarush interrupts Derek, I put a check in the appropriate box. After about 20 minutes, you will see that the same two or three people are doing all of the interrupting. And you might very well see that there are some patterns in who's being interrupted. Right. Hold it up. Oh, look, this is a problem. We need to fix this. True story, about five years ago, a woman at Stanford began collecting data like this in faculty meetings and shared it with her colleagues to show that the same two or three faculty members were constantly interrupting and trampling other people in her department. The faculty's response was stop collecting that data. Right? Nobody here is surprised. Okay. Once you've got it, most people will fix their behavior. And again, if I'm allowed to swear a little bit, the people who get this and still don't change the behavior, well, now you've learned something about them. Right. Managing that guy is the moderator's other job, making sure that everybody gets called on, that the questions are grouped and queued up and so forth. That keeps the meeting rolling. But this, without this, you're sunk. And the link here is to a really nice little website from NOAA, the weather folks down in the United States, They've actually got essentially design patterns for people you don't want in your meeting, right? Cute little names, right? Who is this person? How do you identify them? How do you manage them, right? I, I, I want these emoji so that I can pop them up during a meeting to say, you know what? You're, you're, being, you're being this person, right? So back into the slides. I've been talking about the person who runs the meeting. It's equally important to be an active participant. There's no point having a great conductor if nobody's willing to play, right? How do you do this? Number one, decline invitations. But there's, there's a, an implicit agreement here. If you don't go to the meeting, you don't get to complain about the decisions, right? This is my father's rule. If you don't vote, you don't get to complain. So if you're invited to a meeting, you look over the agenda and you say, no, there's nothing here that I have a strong opinion on. I hereby cede all of my authority to the people who do attend. I abide in advance by their decisions. If you're willing to do that, that's great. The smaller the meeting, the faster the decisions will get made. And I actually do this pretty frequently. There are two or three people that I think I am aligned with enough that I'm willing to let them proxy my vote or even just speak on my behalf, but I still show up sometimes. This again is one of the reasons why you wanna have the agenda at least 24 hours in advance. People need to be able to make this decision, right? Take your own notes. As I said, jot down things as the meeting is going on. It helps you organize your thoughts so you ask more intelligent questions. That makes you look smart, 
on pause before speaking. This is particularly important online. Pausing before you speak increases the chance that you're going to come up with a coherent sentence. But what we find with online communication is that because we don't have nearly the same sort of peripheral awareness of people's body language, we're far more likely to interrupt. Peggy might have one more sentence to get out, but she's paused for breath. And so I jump in and grab the microphone. And again, I don't have data on this, but people do that there seems to be a lot more trampling in online meetings because of these synchronization effects. It disadvantages people in the end of slower connections. So getting into the habit of waiting one beat and then speaking seems to make things run more smoothly. It also gives the moderator a chance to come in if he or she wants to, rather than them having to cut people off to say, no, I'm taking the mic back. And putting down your hand. Um, Zoom and other tools have a mechanism where you can raise your hand to get attention. Feel free to cancel that if somebody else has made the point. It helps if you say, putting my hand down because Daniel's just said what I was going to say or just asked what I was going to say. Just helps the moderator stay on track. So what about doing all of this online? Um, no mixed mode meetings. And this is actually a rule at my current employer and at several other tech companies that I know. If anybody has to be online, we all go online because otherwise the online people are tremendously disadvantaged. Three people in a room and two remotes, the two remotes might as well not be there. And yeah, it feels a little bit silly if you're in an office building to go and find three cubbies to have a meeting when you could get together, but it's the fair thing to do. And the fact that you're trying to be fair also sets the tone for the meeting. Obviously less of an issue in this era of lockdown, but sooner or later, we're gonna be able to get back in person. Uh, don't record the meeting without willing consent. And the willing part is important. If you say, I'm gonna record this, does anybody mind? You're putting a lot of pressure on people. Um, this kind of decision tends to be made once per group and then inherited, which means that new members don't really get a vote. Somebody decided a year ago this meeting was going to be recorded. Now I've joined the group. I'm not really comfortable with it being recorded, but I don't really feel like I can protest. Check in periodically and anonymously. And if you don't understand why it's an issue, if you've ever been the target of a stalker or harassment, the prospect of video of yourself escaping your control on the internet is pretty scary. So the onus should be on people justifying the recording, not on people saying no. It helps, unless this is a regular group, to review the meeting protocol at the start. This is what goes into Zoom. This is what's in the Google Doc. Here's how you indicate that you want to ask a question. Here's about how long the moderator is going to let people speak before cutting them off. If the group meets regularly, you don't need to do this repeatedly. But anytime there's new members or for the first couple of times with a new group, it helps to remind people of the ground rules. I take the minutes in a shared doc. I, I, these days, I just throw them straight into a Google Doc rather than handwritten minutes and then transcribe. I used to have that doc open for everybody to see while the meeting was going on. I have decided over the last couple of years that that's a danger because then they're encouraged to be on their device during the meeting, right? And raising hands digitally, sure, raising your hand, indicating you wanna speak, we all know how to do that. But something that Mike Hoy introduced me to 
um, is an old IRC convention. When I say slash hand, I say, what is it that I want to talk about? And again, that helps the moderator cue things up. Right, so we can stay focused on one topic, but accumulate a backlog for other topics. Finally, seek truth, not victory. Right? Point of the meeting is not social dominance displays. Nobody is here to be a peacock and spread their tail feathers for everybody else to go ooh, ah. And if you've got somebody saying, well, actually, that's a good point for the moderator to dive in and shut them down. Right? But the, the point is not to correct somebody's misspoken Star Trek reference when we're talking about the budget, right? Let it go. Um, please don't raise points you don't actually believe in. The devil does not need more advocates. Bringing something up just to discuss it when you don't think it's a valid point and you don't believe that anybody else in the room thinks it's a valid point is just wasting time, right? And please don't excuse your questions or opinions, right? This is probably stupid, but a lot of people in our society are trained to undercut themselves. And yes, that breaks down along a whole bunch of fairly predictable lines, right? As a moderator, I will often speak to people after meetings and say, you don't need to do that here. And it's not that I'm trying to pressure them. It's not that I'm trying to turn it into me. It's I'm, I'm trying to make it clear to them that if I'm running the meeting, they don't need to undersell themselves because I'm not going to let somebody slap them down, condescend to them, sneer to them, anything like that, right? They don't have to preempt that kind of behavior in this way. Everything has a price. The only downside of knowing how to do meetings well is sitting through other people's meetings. Right. It's really painful if you know how to play music well to sit in with a bunch of people who are hacking away on their instruments. It's really painful if you know how to build software efficiently to sit in with a bunch of people who are emailing each other source files because that version control stuff just slows us down and unit testing is for wimps. Right. Most of what I know I learned from my dad. He was a vice president in the BC Teachers Federation in the mid 1970s. Um, he believed in well-run meetings. And as I said, of all the things that I've learned in 57 years, this is the one that has served me best. It isn't hard, it really isn't. You will get resistance from people who are used to inefficient meetings, just as we get resistance from students who want to continue to use inefficient teaching practices because it allows them to just slouch in their chair and not pay attention, right? Junk food is always the easiest option, but it makes a big difference. <laughs>